The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. In his book Future Shock, author and futurist Alvin Toffler said, The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Learning Relearning and unlearning are the key to surfing the waves of change that we are very much experiencing today. Welcome to the Inside Learning Podcast brought to you by Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. I'm your host, Aidan McCullen, and our guest today is Chief Learning Officer and Vice President of Organisational Effectiveness at Cornerstone, Jeff Miller. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. I'm looking forward to this. It's great to have you on the show, Jeff. And you write so widely as a contributor to Forbes for years, but they all come down to one major topic that is peppered throughout your work. And I alluded to it in the introduction, this concept of unlearning. The interesting thing I found is you've dedicated most of your career to helping people learn as a middle school and high school teacher and university professor. And today you promote learning and development in the corporate world. However, important learning is to personal development, you've discovered unlearning is equally important. And I thought we'd explore that in today's show. But before we do, to give context to that, I thought it'd be useful to talk about the idea of schema that you talk about so brilliantly. Most people don't know the word schema, but they certainly understand what it is when they just get a simple example. So the way I describe schema is this, is is throughout our lives, we're introduced to different topics, different ways of doing things. Uh, From the time that we're babies, uh, we learn process. And these processes really end up coming all together into scripts, uh, literally like a movie script, uh, that when we encounter something in the world, uh, this schema a way, a process of storing and and retrieving information from our brain is activated. And so the idea with schema is that much like anything that you're learning, the more you use these skills, the stronger the connection is, the easier it is to access from your brain. So the example I often like to use with people when we're talking about schemas and they don't quite understand is most people in the world have been to a fast food restaurant. And if people have had the opportunity to travel to another country, uh, they can recognize not necessarily uh, a specific logo, but they can recognize from nonverbal cues in the environment that, oh, this this box must be uh, a fast food restaurant. So I know that when I'm going to go into a fast food restaurant, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to look for the line, I'm going to order I'm going to pay, then I'm going to get my food. Now, on the flip side, uh, we also have schema, a way of organizing our thinking and our our knowledge around fine dining. You know, we don't naturally go into a fine dining restaurant and go look for the line and then pay. It's a completely different order of information. And the thing that's unique about the human brain is that we're able to process these nonverbal and verbal cues in a way that triggers the schema. It activates this script and enables enables us to operate in a way that that may get our goals attained. Now, you have schema in terms of how we approach work. 
And the reason why I love the idea of looking at things like unlearning is that oftentimes these schemas, if you've been at a company or if you've been in a school or you've been really anywhere for a long period of time, this script that you have, this schema, this this systematic way that we approach the world um, may need to get modified a little bit, or it may need to get completely reinvented. And so people that change uh, for example, uh, teams, sports teams, there's a different way to go about practice. There's a different way to go about how people are communicating. There's a different way to, to get to work. Uh, and so really the, the idea with schema is that the more we use something, the stronger our access is to it. And people don't really think about this all the time, but so much of work is about creating the schema, the way people are going to go about things, the steps people are going to need to engage with to successfully execute some of these tasks. So if we've only been in one place for a long period of time, it becomes potentially hard to, you know, sort of relearn something, hence the concept around unlearning. Beautifully articulated, Jeff. And there's so many ways we can go there because of your background as well, through understanding the scheme of being a teacher, for example. I thought about how fast forward after education and somebody's in an organizational position and they're facing some type of crisis or some type of upheaval in their industry and all of a sudden they have to think differently maybe they've worked in this exploitation mode for example of churning out what the company has always been good at and has made them successful in the past there's a disruption in the environment such as a pandemic and all of a sudden they're stuck because they're stuck in the schema that they've ever experienced. And this is something I'm sure you experience all the time with your work in corporate learning. Absolutely. You know, one of the things, you know, there's a, I forgot who said it, but there's this sort of age old adage of, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And part of what ends up happening is that we, we also know that the way the human brass, uh, the way the human brain can process change is that it throws us for a little bit. You know, anytime that change is introduced to us, uh, our reptilian brain, the amygdala, um, kicks in and we go into this fight or flight uh, or freeze stage. And so oftentimes, whether it's working through a pandemic, uh, you know, I was full-time in an office and had to, you know, literally in a three-day window transition to fully remote. Part of this has to do with reconstructing schema, but also part of it is recognizing as well that we have so many different ways that we organize information, how we respond to change, how we work how we set up office spaces. And so a lot of the work that that a lot of people in the learning and development field have been focused on over the last year has been helping people reactivate how we're going to how we're going to work. So one of the things that I found really fascinating was how rapidly everybody talked about remote work. The only thing we ever really heard was cameras on. But now as we're starting to return to a bit more normalcy, I live in Los Angeles and you know we're getting more and more open as it were um, sort of near end pandemic is now people are trying to figure out, you know, do I go back to work? Is it safe to go back to work? And so what we really need and what becomes so essential for organizations as they're getting people ready to go back to work, and this becomes a huge opportunity for people in the learning and development field is making sure that we're very, very clear with what the steps are with regards to all of the different ways we need people to behave so we can help people get through what's called the amygdala hijack, where we fight, flight, or freeze. And we're able to access 
relevant steps to become more successful. It ends up becoming a time saver, but it also becomes very comforting for the people that are trying to get back to work. I love that, man. I'd never thought of like that before, where you bring it back to your analogy about being in a foreign country that, say, for example, I lived there for a year, my schema starts to set like jelly, almost like jello, as you call it in the States. And then I need to change it all of a sudden. And that's what happened to us. We've just gotten used to maybe working from home. And now I go back to the world, the environment has shifted it slightly. And well, a lot. And then all of a sudden, I have to kind of liquefy the jelly again, the jello again, and solidify it for a new world. And that's going to present huge opportunities for unlearning and relearning, but also huge anxiety for people. You know, it can. Uh, absolutely. And I think that that one of the things that that we're seeing now is that the just the fear of the unknown becomes so huge. And that's the piece that a lot of people don't really lean into as much as I think they probably should. You know, when I look back over the last year, and I haven't done a Google search on this, I probably should have, but the words that I keep hearing all the time are, you know, well-being, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and resilience to change. And I think that one of the things that people aren't doing enough as you're looking at creating this schema, creating the script for ourselves, is really thinking and especially reflecting on the last year. You know, what did we learn about how we processed change? And I think one of the concerns that I have for a lot of people on an individual as well as a team and an organizational level is that people are just so hungry to get back to work that what they're at the risk of is not being able to learn, potentially refine some of these schemas, take a look at how they're processing work and what they've learned from this. Because while I, I certainly hope we never see another pandemic or even a, a large disruption like this, if we fail to learn from what we've seen over the last year, um, we're only doomed to repeat the same mistakes we did you know, 14 months ago. It's really interesting what you said there about, for example, diversity, equity, inclusion, or the fear of change, the fear of people who are unlike us, because neurodiversity is something that's high on the list for organizations to get more opinions in, to be people that can spot both opportunities and threats. And I thought about what you said about schema and, and for example, being in a foreign country, that it's almost like you need to experience things in a deeply empathetic way. And I guess this points to so much of the training that's required for people, even role playing, for example, so they can truly have empathy for others, they step into their skin, they walk a mile in their moccasins. And you say in order to unlearn biases and apathetic tendencies, and these apathetic tendencies being just heuristics or habits that we create, we have to develop new ways of thinking about issues and even about disruption and change itself. And you say we have to learn about and listen to the perspective of outgroup members. And this is a challenge for the human brain as well. Absolutely. I think we don't necessarily take a look uh, at sort of our similarity and, and difference perspective and without, you know, erring on the side of the obvious. Uh, and I think you hit on it, which is accessibility to divergent perspectives is critical. And I don't know how widely stated it is, but there's, you know, there's a global focus. I mean, a heavy focus in the U.S. on diversity, equity, inclusion, and now a lot of people are saying, you know, DEI and B, which is belongingness. But I think what a lot of people are forgetting is that when you look at things like bias, when you look at things like 
our schema, which are connected to bias. You know, we, we see somebody, we see something that's different and we recognize, okay, here's how I'm going to respond. What we sometimes fail to recognize is that the beautiful part about making organizations more diverse is it's the divergent perspectives that people bring to it. So for example, you know, when you look at learning and you look at access to information, we can watch movies, we can listen to podcasts, but until we really lean in, and challenge our assumptions or ask uh, and really confront some of these issues, if you will, you know, we're never going to grow. So Emmanuel Acho uh, has a wonderful set of, of, of learning opportunities around the uncomfortable conversations with a black man. And he really leans in, you know, he, he's a, a black athlete. So feel free to let your biases fly about education level, coherence, perspective, background. Um, and he's leaning in and focusing on how do you drive difficult conversations? So when we're looking at things like neurodiversity, I think that what we need to be looking at, uh, and when you look at things like in-group, out-group bias, is we need to recognize that we first and foremost, as really as, as human beings, you know, we are tribal. Uh, and we tend to go and look for similar groups. It's called the in-group, out-group bias, people that look like us, people that sound like us, uh, people that have a similar shared experience. We have a different connectivity with them and, and it's a bias. And until people challenge those biases and really cognitively confront those biases, they're not going to necessarily grow. And neurodiversity is a great example that you brought up because what a lot of people look at when we look at bias is we look at racial bias, we look at age bias, we look at gender bias. But when we start looking at neurodiversity, we start looking at things like hidden biases, things that people may have the opportunity to hide, not that they're you know ashamed or not that they're not proud or not that they recognize these, but there is that perspective of in-group, out-group bias, engagement, how people interact with groups that when we're looking at, the, at specifically around neurodiversity, whether you're looking at, at people on the autism spectrum um, is a great example of this, is that what diverse groups bring to it is the opportunity for people to bring this lifetime of experience into every conversation that they have. So I, I fear that a lot of organizations are really looking at diversity as a numbers play rather than really understanding that if we're bringing in as many people with divergent backgrounds, we're accessing, you know, take, go back to schema for a second. We're ac accessing their way of looking at the world, engaging with the world, how they, how they lean into just saying something in front of a group is going to impact things. And so the in-group, out-group bias, you know, really is this concept of how do organizations create an environment where everybody feels like they're a member of the in-group? The last example I'll give you on this one is it's, it's, it's a great example and it tends to be seen at most colleges and universities, probably a lot of work environments as well, um, which is that you go on the campus of many uh, colleges and universities, and there isn't an area that says, if you look like X, sit here. But most people, when they reflect back on where they went, for example, to college or university, groups tend to even congregate. It's called, you know, we call it involuntary segregation. And people tend to feel more comfortable with in-group. So the challenge for organizations is how do we access information, break down that schema of I don't fit, I don't belong, I'm not included, so they do feel like they're engaged. I thought about those schema being almost like circles. So everybody represented by circles and, and it's the intersection of the circles where they overlap is the magic that you can 
get a, a product, for example, that appeals to a wide audience rather than just your specific cohort that you understand well. And this is the stuff that many organizations don't see is that, as you said, the accessing the different ways lots of people see the world also de-risks a project, for example, innovation or some type of new product onto the marketplace because then you're kind of getting somebody else's opinion, which leads to the next part, which I guess is very tied to your work in corporate learning, is that learning and innovation go hand in hand, that the learning feeds new schema and schema feeds new realities. And it's why, you know, you take a look at so many different organizations that are continuing uh, to look at uh, at how they're going to be approaching work. The, the best example I can give you is, is what everybody seems to be talking about right now, uh, us included, is what is the future of work going to look like? And how are we going to be taking a look at uh, refining or recreating new ways of approaching work schema um, around things like collaboration? And so as we're looking at innovation, um, innovation is really created. Um, and creativity is really created when we have clear constructs around what we're going to be doing. In fact, there's been a lot of different articles on creativity that really the only way we can be creative or be innovative um, is if there are clear sort of rules of engagement. Um, even artists, you know, traditionally considered the most creative people, you know, have a canvas or have clay. There's always some sort of framework around this. So as we're building um, organizations, that are going to be more innovative, uh, we have to take a look not just at telling people to be innovative, but how are we setting up the environment? What's the culture? And most people that I seem to talk to keep defining culture as having a table tennis, um, <laughs> having a beer or coffee. I, you know, I just watched the WeWork documentary the other day, and people tend to define culture as that. But culture, if you look at culture as schema, Culture is really defined as the way we do things at work here. And that's the opportunity for organizations to look at how will we innovate? How will we communicate? And that's where you start to be able to break down those steps in being able to create a schema in people so they'll be able to effectively engage at work. Now, the danger with doing that and this is the challenge that a lot of people in L&D and organizational leaders and senior leadership roles really need to remember, is that there's an area in educational psychology that's called chunking. And all it means is that as we deepen, it's also called automated expertise, but as we learn new things, so take something that has a 15-step you know, process in it. As we learn, once we learn a process, once we have a schema built, the only way that we can improve is speed. And so, for example, take riding a bike. It has all of these different pieces to it, how much pressure you're applying to the brake, how hard you, you pedal, where you're steering, the seat, the, you know, the seat height, all of these things. And so when we try to explain to somebody how to ride a bike, what is common for people is that they'll chunk, they'll combine multiple steps into one. And then what ends up happening is it confuses the learner. So when you're looking at innovation, it goes back to that, that, that old saying of never assume anything and really making sure that we err on the side of the obvious. So what ends up happening is you're constructing a sequence for people to engage and behave in a way that's going to work and not leave them confused. The example that seems to resonate with people in this is 
I used to give talks to large groups of, of teachers years ago. And I used to ask people, you know, how many of you uh, don't like mathematics? And tons of hands go up. And then I go, and then especially in the States, this really resonates, but I, I just don't know how uh, math curricula is structured globally. If I ask people to go back and think about, you know, why they dislike math, if they dislike math, more people than not can identify the specific teacher that made them dislike math. And by and large, it tends to be the teacher that taught them algebra. And the reason why that is, is because we're trying to take something that's a bit more ambiguous and needs to be taught in a concrete manner. And oftentimes math teachers have automated, they've chunked so many steps. So when they're trying to teach it, they inadvertently skip over steps and it leaves students confused. Same thing at work, which is when we don't really lean in and err on the side of the obvious, when we're trying to create work environments that are going to be impactful, we often skip over steps, leaving people confused. And then what people do is revert back to what got them there, their old schema. And so it ends up creating potentially, you know, cultural mismatch, um, frustration, employee manager disagreement. Uh, and it's often heard as, why can't we get on the same page? Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Rather than the leader or the manager saying, how can I re-explain this clear? So it all is connected. That's so interesting, man. I was thinking about the the loop you get into. So if if you're, you know, you revert to the way things, you always did things and the environment has totally changed, you're in trouble. I thought about in nature, there's a phenomenon called an ant mill. And an ant mill is where these military ants follow each other because they give off a pheromone and they follow the pheromone and something goes wrong with the pheromone and they basically go in a loop, in a circle. And, and the ant mill can be huge, thousands of ants, and they go in a circle over and over again until they die. And it's incredible. And, and I, I often think about that happening in organizational change or L&D initiatives that if everybody's the same, everybody thinks the same, and everybody does what they've always done, you're in trouble as an organization. But but I wanted to bring it to L&D there because we kind of touched on the change in the environment from, from a, a pre-pandemic time, call it BC before COVID, and to a post-pandemic time, that the, the workplace and how we practice work and how we collaborate and, you know, certain amount of days from home, all this kind of stuff will change and settle over time. But the other thing that needs to change is something that's very dear to your heart and that of the show, the show being brought to us by Trinity's Learnovate Centre. And it is the whole experience of L&D, how things are going to change there, because that's going to rapidly change. What are, what are your feelings on the changes that we're going to see? It's a great question. I think that what I've been advocating for, for, for a while has been a couple of things. One is not so long ago, many organizations did not have a learning and development function. They had training departments and just in nomenclature, the word training suggests I'm going to tell you and show you what to do and you're going to execute it. The, the ownership of it really is on the trainer to make sure that I'm watching you to see behavioral change. So one of the pivots that's happened as people have transitioned to learning and development is recognizing that there's more individual ownership of employees to invest in their own learning 
to really drive the fact that they are agents of their own control. I think that where we're going, so now that, you know, there's phenomenal learning content out there, uh, you know, Cornerstone has wonderful content. There's lots of wonderful content out there. But part of where L&D, I think, is going to start to morph or where it needs to morph is in a couple of areas. One is it's moving more from content delivery into content curation. But where L&D leaders need to be spending time, especially as we're looking at things like unlearning, is recognizing what's happening with current and relevant trends, but not just in learning and development. So I think that the unique thing about about that is that historically, if you were in learning, you were a learning expert. You knew how to build curricula. You knew how to generate feedback loops. um, You knew how to run the Kirkpatrick model of assessment. But now where L&D leaders, at least the ones that I know that are really effective, are looking at global trends, are looking at economic trends, are looking at geographical trends, cultural trends, political trends, because as the world continues to get flatter, where L&D really needs to be leaning in is not just teaching people the skills they need to be able to do their job, but we end up in many ways needing to be able to focus on teaching these you know, these softer skills, which soft skills has, you know, get, gets short shrift for names because soft skills are the only skills that we can't ever perfect. They're actually the hardest skills to learn. And so as we're looking at the role of L&D, specifically when we're looking at unlearning and, and rebuilding, there's a couple of things, which is one is, you know, several years ago, everybody talked about building a learning culture, but I think we're L&D functions need to be moving is building more of a feedback and a coaching culture where feedback is being delivered up, down, and sideways, where people are asking for feedback, where people are giving feedback and people are getting feedback with the most important one being asking for feedback. So I think where corporate L&D needs to be looking at is how are we looking at collaboration? What does collaboration look like? How are we giving feedback? How do we get to that place as the world leans into things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? How are we creating an environment where we're able to safely, I mean, everybody talks about psychological safety. How are we really able to point out to somebody that what they're saying is offensive, for example? It can be a very scary place. So again, go back to schema. You say something, you see a response from somebody, and immediately you're, you, you activate a schema. You try to figure out how to behave in an environment. So it goes broader than just that because it's really about skill building. It's about how we onboard, um, how we're regularly building uh, a structured sequence for managers and employees to bi-directionally give each other feedback about what they're doing that's effective, but also what they're doing that's not leading them to the, to, the, uh, to the goal they're working on. The last point I was thinking about this is, is that historically, it's like learning and development training functions have maybe you know, seen themselves as the keeper of the truth, but I tend to try to think of it as rather than being the keeper of the truth, L&D should be thinking of it as their role is giving access to the trailhead using a hiking analogy. And so if L&D provides opportunities to learn and the organization creates an environment where conversation is healthy, 
where we can lean into recognizing that our intentions with giving each other feedback is about making you more effective and you more impactful rather than my intrinsic need to give you feedback because it makes me feel powerful is a unique opportunity um, for for L&D. And I think that it's a really unique space for people to be creating a, you know, a mindset. Again, another term that I started studying back when I did my doctoral work in the late nineties was around learning mindset. You know, Carol Dweck stuff was, has been around for years, but we're only now really leaning into things that we've been talking about for years. Diversity, equity, inclusion has been talked about for years. Now we're recognizing the importance of it. Learning mindset has been around forever, but now we're only really leaning into really understanding what it is but I still feel that a lot of L&D functions are still in the place of just presenting information rather than presenting information and driving conversation. Because, you know, to quote, not really to quote, but to, to reference a, a Russian psychologist by the name of Lev Vygotsky, you know, his theory on learning, I still believe from the 50s, actually still stands really relevant today. And what he said was that, you know, Learning is really deep learning is really created when we co-construct, co-create information. And we co-create information when we talk about things and we make that learning our own. It becomes part of, of who we are. And so from an LD perspective, you know, it's not just about you know, rolling out unconscious bias training, but rolling out unconscious bias training with a path forward to drive organizational conversations to really move the needle to be able to lean in and have really, truly difficult conversations. Um, and then that's where I think we're going to start seeing the organizations that do that are going to potentially start seeing sizable differences in the business results that are delivered. Because to bring this thing sort of full circle, if we're really able to lean in and give each other feedback, if we're asking each other the tough questions, if we're challenging each other's ineffective behaviors and strategies and schema, and we're able to course correct those and grow from them, embracing this learning mindset, businesses will execute faster, they'll be more resilient, and they'll achieve results um, in a way that they probably haven't necessarily seen before, and it'll be done more deliberately. What a great way and great message to end today's show. Jeff, for people who want to find out more about your writing, where to find you, et cetera, where can they find you? Twitter is a great place, Jay Miller, PhD. Um, search for me on, uh, on LinkedIn. You can find me just by searching Jeff Miller Cornerstone um, and you'll find things. But I appreciate you having me today. And that's it for another episode of Inside Learning Podcast brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Chief Learning Officer and Vice President of Organisational Effectiveness at Cornerstone, Jeff Miller. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.